You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. Michael Bloomberg, billionaire, is thinking about running for president. He's thought about it for a long time and was urged to think harder and actually get in the race a few months ago by Jeff Bezos, billionaire. Bezos actually called Bloomberg personally and encouraged him to run for president. It seems that both of these billionaires, along with billionaire Bill Gates and the rest of the billionaires, are freaking out about Elizabeth Warren's proposed wealth tax, which would work like this. Your first 50 million of accumulated wealth, you get to keep that free and clear. Every additional dollar you pile up over 50 million, You pay a 2% tax on each of those dollars. That's the wealth tax. So if you're worth $50 million and $20, your wealth tax bill amounts to a whopping 40 cents. If you're worth more than a billion dollars, your wealth tax skyrockets to the not the least bit confiscatory 3%. The New York Times took a look at what this would mean for Gates, Bezos, and Bloomberg. If her wealth tax had been in effect since 1982, Mr. Gates, who had made his first billion dollars by 1987, would have had $13.9 billion in 2018 instead of $97 billion. Jeff Bezos, the world's richest person, would have had $48.8 billion last year instead of $160 billion. And Michael Bloomberg would have had $12.3 billion instead of $51.8 billion. So with that wealth tax in place, we'd all have health care, student debt forgiveness, clean energy, better schools, And Jeff Bezos would have to find a way to make ends meet with just $50 billion to his name. I'm recording today in Seattle, Washington, home to Amazon and Microsoft, sources of Bezos and Gates' fortunes, respectively. And Michael Bloomberg might want to read up on our local city council elections before he takes political advice from Jeff Bezos. Last year, our city council passed a business tax. It would have cost Amazon, source of Jeff Bezos' $160 billion personal fortune, about $10 bucks a year money the city planned to spend on the housing and homelessness crisis that Amazon has made much, much worse around here. Amazon and the city's stupid racist zoning laws, which in fairness were on the books long before the internet was a thing, much less Amazon. Anyway, Amazon freaked out. The city council quickly voted to rescind this head tax, as it was called, but that wasn't good enough. Amazon and the next city council election, the one we just had, they poured $1.5 million into our city council, our piddling little city council election. They backed a slate of centrist pro-corporate candidates and really, really wanted to take out Kashama Sawant, a rabble-rousing socialist who was first elected to our city council in 2013. Of the 1.5 million Amazon spent on the Seattle city council elections, 500,000 of that went to defeat Sawant. The Washington Post headline, Washington Post, owned by Jeff Bezos. The Washington Post headline sums it up. Amazon spent $1.5 million on Seattle City Council races. The socialist it opposed has won. Of the eight candidates Amazon backed in an effort to stack our city council, seven lost. Despite Amazon's best efforts, despite all that money, Seattle still has a socialist on the city council, and the hated head tax is coming back. So just saying, Michael Bloomberg, you might want to think twice before you take Jeff Bezos's political advice, unless the plan is to elect Warren, which is a plan I could get behind.
All right, coming up on today's show on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, as always, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and on the Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com, twice as long and no ads. L. Stanger, veteran sex worker and sex workers' rights advocate, joins us to talk Faustus Esta and about her campaign to decriminalize the sale of sex in Oregon. Got to start somewhere. All that coming up on today's show. Hey, Dan and people. I'm a 27-year-old lady. And I have a question about making my pee fetish dreams come true. So I recently discovered this fetish by watching unexpected porn. And I've developed this fantasy of somebody just peeing inside of me. Uh, my partner is GGGE, doesn't totally understand, isn't like super turned on by it, but he's down. He's kind of played around by it with like maybe a little pee in the shower or something. But for him, he it's mostly really just hard for him to pee in front of me. He gets pee shy, he says. So I am trying to figure out how we could help him move past the pee shyness. And if you have any tips for that, sometimes he'll like be trying to pee in the toilet and he'll stop and be like okay and then try and come into the shower but then by then he can't keep going so uh, yeah any tips would be great there are really two questions here how to help a pee shy partner get past the pee shyness so they can pee in front of you and the advisability of your partner peeing in your vagina there is actually an entire article at buzzfeed by casey garen addressing this very issue and the consensus of the two experts that she assembles. And it's a really good piece. I recommend people look at it. Sex Q&A, can I pee inside my wife, is the headline. The consensus seems to be probably a bad idea. If there's any bacteria in your partner's urine, that could be a problem for you. It could throw the pH balances off in your vagina. But, you know, if it's something that you really desperately want to do and it's not something you're going to do, all the freaking time, you could probably get away with it. Of course, I'm just summarizing what I just read. That seems to be, again, the consensus of the experts that Casey Garan assembled for her piece. Sex Q&A, can I pee inside my wife? Everybody should go read that. All right. A pee shyness. Well, you know, somebody who has a hard time peeing in front of you is probably going to have a really hard time peeing in you. But pee shyness can be overcome Gradually, you're in the room when they pee in the normal way, in the typical way, in the way that they usually pee into the toilet. You're standing right behind them when they do it, but not in their field of vision. You're behind them, not in their field of vision, and you're touching them and they're peeing. And then gradually you can get to a point where they can turn and face you in the shower or wherever else it is that you like to get peed on and pee on you. Most people, even people who aren't particularly pee shy when they're going to pee on someone, kind of have to go away for a second. They kind of have to close their eyes and concentrate. And really, I think what most people are doing at that moment is pretending they're not about to pee on someone and just thinking they're just going to pee as they normally would if they normally peed in the shower or normally peed straddling the tub, which most people don't normally do. But if you recreate kind of the physical sensations, if you close your eyes, if you imagine that there isn't somebody on their knees in front of you, people who are pee shy can, by closing their eyes and imagining that this isn't actually what they're about to do, get the flow going and manage to uh, pee all over their partner, pee shy or not. Good luck. 
Hi, Dan. I'm a 30-something queer woman from the Pacific Northwest living with my partner who's a out trans non-binary person. And I just have a question. I've been in LGBTQ circles for a while, but I'm running into something I don't think I've really encountered before. We have a recent new friend who, upon meeting them, was like, my first impression was like, this is pretty clearly a trans man, which, you know, just you sometimes have those like, those thoughts pop in your head, no judgment there at all. And my partner being so comfortable being out, um, I pretty much expected this guy to, you know, at some point come out to us and he's married. And just recently I was in a conversation with his wife and it was really odd because she made some comments that really made it sound like her, their kids who are like preteens don't know that he's trans, which is fine. It's one thing, but like, whatever, you know, your family choices. But the other thing that seemed weird was she just seems really defensive about like anyone assuming that he might be trans to the point where I felt like she was trying to convince me that he wasn't without even like so much as saying, saying that, but it was just a really defensive, pretty one-sided conversation where she was super focused on all of the masculine things about him, all of the, I mean, she even brought up how she's trying to raise her kids in an LGBTQ friendly way um, and show them diversity, like from outside sources, like books and historical books about people who have been, uh, you know, in LGBTQ circles in the past. And the way she mentioned it just kind of made it sound like it's something she has to try to do rather than hey, you're actually married to a trans dude. So I don't know. I just felt really confused. I couldn't tell. Part of me wonders if this is some sort of like power balance move for her that she, I suspect that she's a little bit manipulative and abusive of him to begin with. So I'm wondering if this is some sort of unhealthy thing. I don't know. I'm just wondering if you have any insight on that. I did a little bit of internet sleuthing and found out that, you know, this person definitely is trans. And I just thought it was weird finding that out after this conversation I had with his wife where she was making it very clear that she didn't want anyone to think he was, basically. So anyway, if you have any idea what could be going on there, I just want to know how to move forward with this friendship and, like, potentially be there to support this guy while also navigating his wife's weird comments um, that seem, like, hyper-defensive about Okay, I'm not exactly sure where to start with this one. If this guy doesn't want to identify as a trans man, but just wants to be identified or or, or thought of as a man and not trans first or not trans by anyone other than close, intimate friends that he decides for his own reasons and at his own speed and at the time that's right for him to come out to, that's his right. And you shouldn't be prying into his past to try to bust him for not being as out about being trans as your partner is. Maybe being as out about being trans as your partner is isn't right for him. Maybe it's not right for him right now. Maybe it's not right for him ever. And it is weird, the conversation that you describe having with his wife. But if he is, you know, to some extent, obviously trans, but doesn't wish for anyone to know that he's trans, maybe his wife is not abusing him, but rather awkwardly trying to run interference for him. 
on his behalf. But you just met these people. You don't really know them. And you're not entitled to run their lives for them. And they don't have to be out about being trans in the same way that your partner is or on the same timetable. Or It's really their private business. And as awkward as it makes you feel, you're going to have to respect that. And if it feels like being around them means having to participate in a lie or being dragged back into a closet yourself, you don't have to be friends with them. You don't have to hang out with them if hanging out with them makes you uncomfortable. And, and I assume you know this. You're a queer person. You have a trans partner. You don't get to dictate to them how and when they come out, if indeed they ever come out about this. So take it easy. Pull back from this relationship if it makes you feel awkward or uncomfortable and stop prying. You know, I don't want to come down on you too hard because I have certainly been in situations where I was interacting with somebody that I knew to be gay, who was lying to my face about the fact that they were straight, being sort of over the top straight, talking about how much they love to eat pussy, talking about all the girls they fucked, talking about their girlfriend, Alberta, who lives in Vancouver, right? I have been in that situation. And it made me very uncomfortable to have to sort of smile and nod and play along and help that person really construct their closet or watch as they constructed their closet and and sort of feeling bank shot shamed myself because I'm standing there and I'm gay and this person is obviously so uncomfortable with the thought of being gay that they can't handle it and that they are you know overcompensating in an enormous way in this kind of performative way that made me feel not bad about being gay myself but just like weird as a gay person to have to interact with somebody who was struggling with so much shame so so I feel you I get it. I get what that feeling is like. On the other hand, there are some trans people who legitimately don't identify as trans first, who want to be perceived as men and as women without a qualifier, without a, a prefix. And that's a little different than the gay thing. The gender thing is a little different than the gay thing in this context, because for some Trans men and women, that desire to be perceived first or only as men or women, that's a legitimate choice. And if that's the choice that this couple has made or that he has made, you're going to have to respect it. Hello, Dan, Nancy, and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. I'm a chronically overthinking 37-year-old cis-straight guy living in Europe. I'm in a recently open marriage, and that's been going very well so far, thanks in no small part to your advice. So first off, thanks for everything that you do. I have two questions that are semi-related. First, what is the protocol for open married guys asking women out in the real world? One of the first questions you get asked as an immigrant is, so why did you move here? And the answer for me is that it's my wife's home country and this is where we wanted to start our family. So I can't have a basic conversation without defining myself as what most people assume is committed and unavailable. I want to be honest about my deal, but the first five minutes of a conversation feels too soon to throw in, and hey, it's an open marriage just in case you want to hook up three hours from now. How do I let women know I'm interested and semi-available in a way that is honest but not too forward? And before you say it, there are no poly meetups here. Assume I'm at a random social event. My second question pertains to maleness itself. I've always felt excluded from traditional masculinity, the discomfort with feelings, the one-upsmanship, the callous jokes, the unquestioned embrace of patriarchal status ideals. 
I have a hard time making friends with guys because I just don't trust us to be kind and present human beings. And these days, the message that men, especially straight white ones like me, are hollow, selfish, destructive people who just make everyone else miserable for a living is coming through on all channels. I had the idea that men are emotionally and physically dangerous instilled in me from a very young age. And in my eagerness to avoid growing up to be a wife-beating pervert rapist, I developed a fear of my own sexuality that kept me romantically paralyzed for most of my adult life. I've loosened up a bit, but to this day, I am astounded that anyone touches any of us with a 10-foot pole, despite the fact that it clearly happens all the time, even occasionally to me. So I could do with a shift in perspective, and I thought it might be fun to ask you, a guy who sleeps with and loves other guys, what's the attraction? Despite all the shitty things that we are and do, what about men would you save if you could strip us down to nothing and rebuild us from the ground up? Because damn it, Dan, it is very hard to feel sexy when you hate yourself this much. Wow. Let's tackle that first question First, the protocol for open married guys when it comes to asking women out. Well, you can be on dating apps and you can be out about the fact that you are married in an open relationship on dating apps. But if you're in a social situation where you know, you've got the wedding ring on and you encounter someone and you're in Europe and it comes up, why are you here? How is it that you moved here? You, you can you know, just toss it out there that you moved here to be with your wife and then continue to have a, a pleasant and friendly and emotionally open interaction with this person. And if there's some spark of attraction, they may feel conflicted about it because they may assume that you're unavailable. They may actually flirt with you because you feel like a, a safe target for the flirting because you're not available because you're married. And the assumption, the default setting is married and therefore monogamous and therefore unavailable. And so you still may get some flirtatious attention at a certain point. If you feel that connection, if you feel that spark, you can offer up that you're in an open relationship and that you and your wife both date other people. And the person that you offered that to at that moment may run screaming because if they were flirting with you because nothing could come of it to suddenly learn that something literally or two things, two human beings could come of it, that may end it for them. That may make them feel unsafe. They also may feel a, a little misled and it's not your fault. It's their assumption about what marriage means. That marriage means monogamy and the fact that you're married means you're unavailable. That's their assumption. You're not at fault for that faulty, you know, in a significant percentage of cases, assumption being inaccurate. But you may find that once you toss that out there, somebody wants to take you up on it. You may also find that some people are attracted to you specifically because you're married and not available for I don't want to say more because if you're open and you're allowed to date other people, you are available arguably for more than just sex, but you're not available for everything. You're partnered, you're married, you have kids with someone else. You have a limited emotional and sexual bandwidth that somebody else can tap into. So yeah, that's what I would advise you to do in a social setting. Just be nice and open. And if somebody flirts with you, return the flirt. And at that point where it feels right, where it feels relevant, where it feels appropriate, can toss that information about yourself being actually available out there and see how they react, see how they take it. As for, you know, traditional masculinity, as for stripping men down to nothing and rebuilding us from the ground up as a, you know, a gay guy who sleeps with men, what do I like about men? Well, every day I get down on my knees <laughs> and thank God that I'm one of those gay guys who likes gay guys. I'm sort of outside of traditional 
masculinity. I'm not invested any more than it sounds like you were growing up or you are now in kind of traditional hypermasculine, competitive, performative sort of maleness, assholery. That doesn't appeal to me. I'm one of those gay guys, thank God, down on my knees, thanking God every day. I'm one of those gay guys who really likes gay dudes. I like that certain kind of unselfconsciousness that many gay dudes have about their feminine sides. And I like that blend and I like that mix. I like guys who are a little bit, you know, masculine. My husband's pretty fucking masculine. But I also like guys, including guys like my husband, who are comfortable enough in their own skins that when there's something that's traditionally classed as feminine, some, you know, intellectual pursuit, some hobby, some passion, even some mannerism or behavioral attribute that they don't think twice about doing that because they're not policing themselves. And it's easier, I think, often for gay guys to give themselves that freedom because you've already given yourself the freedom to put other men's dicks in your mouth. And if you aren't a kind of mask for mask, self-conscious, bro-y type of gay, and that's not to disparage guys who are actually, you know, masculine and that's not a performance for them. That's actually who they are. But if you're not performing it, yeah, you're going to be easier. You're going to be more comfortable in your skin and more attractive to gay dudes like me. Not that all gay dudes out there are invested in me finding them attractive necessarily. All that said, men are dangerous. Men are testosterone soaked dick monsters. Men are the leading cause of death and injury for their Female partners, domestic violence is a problem in gay male same-sex relationships as well. And that's a very unattractive attribute. If I were going to strip men down to the foundation and rebuild men, it would be without that propensity for violence. And some people theorize that it has a lot to do with testosterone and aggression. Others theorize that it has more to do with socialization and attitudes about entitlement and anger and emotional stultification and how sort of repressed and bottled up men can become and and how men don't express their feelings, you know, often don't have intimate friendships, often don't have people that they can confide in. And that can contribute to sort of outbursts as opposed to constant controlled releases of emotion and aggression and aggression as an emotion. So but what do I love about men? I don't know. The way they smell, the way they look, the way they taste. Couldn't live without it. If I was going to strip men down to the ground, I would keep all of those things. But you don't have to carry on your shoulders the weight of all male terribleness. You just have to scrutinize yourself, interrogate yourself, as they like to say in the women's studies programs, interrogate your own behavior to make sure that you're not one of the toxic baddies. And if you're not one of the toxic baddies, you don't have to take collective responsibility for all the toxic baddies out there and walk around hating yourself for being men. You don't have to get up on the cross and perform martyrdom any more than you have to jump down off that cross and perform masculinity. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. I'm a 20-something married by woman living in the Midwest, and I have a question regarding threesomes. So my husband and I have open up our relationship to threesomes, which is wonderful. We love it. Um, and something that I have kind of been pondering is 
So we are, we do not want children. It's just a choice that we've made. We made it early in our relationship. It's just something that we do not want. I take birth control. He pulls out. We do all the things to make sure that that's not something that happens. And we send this into our um, special guest stars. But what I'm wondering is, do we need to disclose, like we've, we've said to our partners, we don't want kids. But do we need to say more than that with our partners? Do we need to say, hey, so we don't want kids. We would prefer that you don't get pregnant. Just so you're aware, if something does come up, we're not going to be involved in that. That's not something that we'd want. I guess I just feel like it's kind of squiggy and kind of like squishy, and I just don't really know how to address it beforehand, or even, honestly, even if we need to address it beforehand. But I guess one of my worst fears is that my husband and I, who are do not want kids, he ends up conceiving a child with someone who just happens to be fertile, the situation just happens to be right, and it just happens to be that 0.5% that something happens. Um, so I guess I'm just wondering how, if we have to just, if we have to ask about that, and if we do, how, what's the best way to make it feel like you have to get an abortion if you sleep with us? Because I definitely don't want to feel like that or have that come off. I think I speak for everyone when I say, why hasn't your husband gotten a fucking vasectomy already? If you two are certain that you do not want children ever, and your big concern in having three ways and having sex with other female partners is knocking one up rather than jumping down the throats of the women, your very special guest stars that you're sleeping with about their feelings about choice or telling them in advance of an unplanned pregnancy. If your husband is the cause that you will abandon them and you will want nothing to do with that child, which you know what legally is not your choice to make get a fucking vasectomy. Also use condoms and pull out. And because sometimes condoms break, have morning after pills stocked up and ready to go in your own medicine cabinet. So if there is a semen emergency, you can bust the morning after pills out right then and there and offer them to your very special guest star. But you can't tell someone in advance of opposite sex sex that they are obligated to get an abortion if your husband should knock them up because that's their choice to make. And you also can't tell someone that your husband has knocked up that you two will have nothing to do with the child if there is a child because that's the court's decision to make. And your husband would not be forced to parent this child but would be forced to pony up child support for this child over the next 18 plus years. And if this is a nightmare scenario for you to contemplate, if this is the worst case scenario and you two are positive that you do not want children now or ever, why has vasectomy not come up? Why did vasectomy not come up in your question? Why has your husband not already run in and gotten the snip? If he did that, then you and he, fuck your, you know, thirds, fuck your very special guest stars, you and he wouldn't have to use condoms. You guys wouldn't have to pull out. He would be able to blow those giant, enormous spermatozoa-free loads right inside you. 
All that said, you have a right to inquire about other people's birth control methods. If you guys are having sex, when you have the conversation about STIs, about safety, a very important component of safety when you're talking about heterosexual sex is contraception. And you can say, this is what we do for contraception. We use condoms. We pull out. You can ask your very special guest star, do they have an IUD? Are they on the pill? Do they want to use condoms? Do they want to pull out? And how do they feel about the morning after pill? And how do they feel about an unplanned pregnancy if that actually comes to pass? But they could tell you in that moment that, you know, if there's an unplanned pregnancy, I will get an abortion. That doesn't obligate them to get an abortion, though, if there's an unplanned pregnancy. And they change their minds. Ultimately, it is her choice, not her male partner's choice, and not her male partner's female partner's choice either. Hey, Dan, I'm a 40-year-old cisgender hetero male. And uh, me and my wife, well, I'm going to be ex-wife, are separating and going through the divorce process. Now, when this first started, she had an affair, and we agreed to do counseling, and she agreed not to have contact with the man. Uh, She agreed that she would really try to save our marriage, promised me over and over again that she she wanted to try. Uh, Her first session alone, she came back and said the marriage was no longer going to work, but she was still willing to try. And would keep saying stuff like this. I don't think it's going to work, but I'm willing to try. And kept making promises, period, uh, with all this stuff. And uh, basically, I found out, I found a love letter that she'd written him where she had said that he was the only man she'd ever really loved and how she finally wanted to be loyal to him and give him all the time and energy. So, needless to say, I knew that we were no longer going to be together. But she still promised after that not to have any more contact. During this period, she would still sleep in the bed with me and tell me that she loved me and go through the motions of being married. We got into a fight about self-care and I asked her why she cared what I did. And she said, because you're my husband and I love you. I cannot get her to understand how her actions and what she's saying and the other actions and what she's doing are driving me out of my goddamn mind. She's moving out, but unfortunately she can't do it right away because of our mortgage and everything like that. So while this is going on, she's sleeping in another room finally. We're fighting constantly, but at the same time, she keeps telling me how much she loves me, how she doesn't want to hurt me, and how she tried to fix it. But, you know, it is what it is, but I'm her husband. She'll always love me. She'll always be loyal to me. She loves someone else. In the future, maybe this will happen or this will happen. Is there some way I can convince her that she is driving me insane, sending me all these mixed signals? Because at this point, I don't know what to do. I'm, uh, I suffer from bipolar disorder and I have PTSD. And she is literally triggering multiple episodes where I'm having uh, mani- mania depression, which is rare for me, manic episodes and mania episodes. And I don't know how much longer I can handle this without just losing my mind. I don't know what's going on in your wife's head. I don't know if she is maliciously trying to drive you crazy or if she is saying the things that she thinks she's supposed to say in her shoes that she's, you know, she owes you giving it a a try, you know, trying to save the marriage. Often when people are in, marriages that are collapsing because they want out and the other person doesn't, they're told that 
you know, they, that they owe their spouse at least the effort, at least going to counseling, at least giving the marriage a chance. And she may be saying those things not because she feels them, but because she feels obligated to say them because they feel like the right thing to say. And she may incorrectly assume that these are kind and loving things to say. Or maybe your wife is a, a, a malicious, malignant narcissist who is intentionally trying to make you miserable. But whether she's intentionally trying to make you miserable or not, she's making you miserable. And the mixed signals, you know, telling you that she loves you and she may actually love you, but she doesn't love you like she loves him. And that letter sounds like a very damaging thing for you to have read. She may actually feel conflicted herself. She may sometimes feel like he's the only man that she's ever really, truly loved in the way that she loves him. And at other times feel like she also, you know, she married you, loves you too, and doesn't want, even though she is the cause of so much pain in your life, doesn't actually want you to suffer. And maybe I'm giving her the benefit of all sorts of grave doubts, but my ultimate point is the mixed messages are making you crazy and they're triggering you. And so you need to do whatever you can do to get the fuck away from your wife now, to get out of that house, to put some distance between you so that there isn't this kind of everyday intimacy and these expressions of love and affection that seem so in conflict with her behavior and her actions and that fucking letter to, to get under your skin and trigger you and make you crazy. So if you have family that you can go stay with, if you have a fr even a friend's couch that you can go sleep on, if not every night, maybe some nights, just to put some distance between you and your wife. You know, she can't send you these mixed signals if you're not there, if you're not laying in bed with her, if you're not sharing a home with her. And if she sends you the mixed signals via text or via direct message, when you're away, you can block her. You can decide when you feel strong enough to interact with her, to have a conversation with her, to unmute her or unblock her phone number, or to look at her messages. Only when you feel strong enough to look at her messages in case there are, again, those mixed signals that are making you feel so, for lack of a better term, and I don't mean to be ableist, crazy. Get the fuck away from her. Do whatever you can do to accelerate the divorce process, the getting into your own apartments and out of this shared home process, even if it's temporary, even if you're couch surfing for a while, you need to get the fuck away from your soon-to-be ex-wife. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to have a conversation with Elle Stanger, a veteran sex worker, DIY porn producer, and she has two missions at the moment as an activist, raising awareness about how FOSTA-SESTA has harmed sex education online and off, and working to decriminalize the sale of sex in Oregon, her home state. Hey, Elle, thanks for joining us. Hey, Dan, thank you for having me. Uh, my pleasure. Now, regular listeners will know what FOSTA-SESTA is because I've ranted about it a lot and talked with a lot of people about it. It's the House's bill, Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act, and the Senate bill, SESTA, the Senate Stop Enabling Sex Traffickers Act. Accused sexual predator in the White House, Donald Trump, signed the combined bill into law in the summer of 2018. But for new listeners who, you know, hear FOSTA-SESTA but aren't sure exactly what it does or is, can you quickly run us through what FOSTA-SESTA is? Sure. So it is really, really complicated. Firstly, it 
it affects the way the internet functions and it changes the way the internet has functioned in 22 years of it existing since so many rules were put in place in the 90s. So now for the first time in 22 years, websites and platforms are liable for what their users post. So when Backpage was already being rated and Backpage was basically like a Craigslist personal site for people who were selling things or renting sex, selling their time. I knew a lot of providers who used this for years because it was a way they could communicate with their clients and book them and negotiate and keep in contact. So when Backpage at this time, two days before there was a hearing on, and I pronounce them differently, FOSTA, SESTA, Backpage had been rated two days prior because it was found out that despite having majority of listings for adults and consensual providers, they did have some underage people listed in their Lolita section. So they had minors. They were breaking the rules and they got charged for it. They were facilitating the trafficking of minors. Anybody who is selling sex under 18 in the United States is automatically considered a victim of sex trafficking or a survivor of sex trafficking because the idea is you have to be 18 to consent. And that's what similar but separate issue. So now because the bills passed, because nobody wanted to say no to bills called fight online sex trafficking, it just makes you sound like a bad person, Mm -hmm. even if you don't understand it. Now, the only two dissenters to the bill passing was Rand Paul, I believe, and he says no to everything, and Ron Wyden from Oregon. And he said, do not pass this because now you're going to be investigating people even more who are consensually trading sexually explicit or sexually relevant images. And that's exactly what's happening. So the Department of Justice also said, please don't pass this. You're going to make it harder for us to find people who are actually being trafficked, actually being harmed, actually need the resources of rescue and advocacy and law enforcement. So now that Boston says to pass, no website wants to be held liable for trafficking or prostitution like Backpage was, even though Backpage was already being investigated successfully um, before FOSTA and SESTA were passed, the people who wanted to pass FOSTA and SESTA were overwhelmingly anti-porn politicians like Rob Porter and Ann Wagner, who incorrectly stated that all trafficking in in the U.S. came from um, Backpage, which it didn't, not at all. Um, So what happened now is Backpage is gone. Craigslist Personals removed their um, their people seeking people ads because, you know, that was a great way for people to also communicate. And of course, I'm sure money was exchanged. So online platforms are deleting any sign of a sex worker because they can't really tell who's consensual by looking. I mean, a lot of us can, but the admin, they're like, oh, is this linked to an adult link, someone selling their porn that they made, or maybe even a sex educator who has explicit files with a bunch of dicks in it. I don't know if this is related to trafficking, so I'm just going to delete it. So listings for consensual providers are gone, and it's way harder for people who work consensually to make money. And people who are being trafficked and did have their listings up and were more easily um, in, able to investigate them, those listings have gone deeper underground. So trafficking in San Francisco, according to their de- police department and their advocacy group, St. James Infirmary Clinic, who deals with sex workers and people who are dealing with trafficking, they said that 
in San Francisco, the year alone after Fossa set the path, their trafficking reports went up 170%. Because people are more vulnerable to being trafficked now post Fossa Sesta than they were before. Right. Because I hear from providers who are grown adults like myself, and they say, I've made 50% less money or 80% less money, so I'm more likely to take a dangerous job. Or I'm more likely to accept when a middleman, like a pimp, steps in and says, I hear you're having a hard time getting bookings and advertising because of, you know, the internet. So let me do those bookings for you. But now you've lost control and you're paying someone. So when sex workers don't have the ability to exist on the internet, communicate for themselves, they lose power. And when victims of sex trafficking aren't able to be receive resources because we funneled our resources into deleting and censorship of consensual sex workers, it doesn't make sense. You know, I have to jump in here to say that this isn't a bug for, I think, most of the backers of Fosta-Sesta, that the intent was to make sex work more dangerous for the people who were doing it consensually so that fewer people would do it consensually because they oppose sex work and, you know, making it, you know, making it more costly physically, making it more dangerous. You know, we talk about that as, oh, couldn't they have seen this was coming? Or now that we know that Fosta-Sesta made sex work more dangerous, we should appeal to the people who backed it because they will, you know, they'll come around, they'll turn around on this issue. And, and, and I don't think that's the case. It's just like people who want to criminalize abortion. They know that there will still be abortions. Uh, They know that those abortions will be more dangerous and that women will die. But they hope that acts as a disincentive and persuades other women when they hear about women dying from abortions not to do abortions. So the upping of the danger, the upping of the risk for sex workers, again, that's the feature for a lot of backers of Mm Fosta-Sesta. Not a bug. That was the Mm -hmm. intended consequence. And yet they wrap it all up in this rhetoric of like saving and rescuing and protecting women, always just women, even though there are men out there who do sex work too, saving and rescuing (laughs) women who are, you know, pulled into sex work and conflating all, you know, all selling of sex, all sex work with being trafficked. And and it's Mm -hmm. so maddening, but it's had sort of knock on effects that just don't impact sex workers. You know, they pulled down the Craigslist personals. It's also made it almost impossible for people who are doing sex education to be online. They're sort of, you know, rounding everything up that's even, you know, that, that's sexual or educational to some sort of trafficking crime. Absolutely. I mean, I work, I have my own podcast, actually. I work with a young man, gay friend of mine, and we talk about all kinds of stuff that's self-help and educational and resources. And I can't link to it on Instagram because it's marked as adult because we talk about full service sex work and we say the F word. (laughs) So I have, you know, um, and it's not even just sex providers or our clients, you know, it's clients are human beings and I have human beings looking me in the face every week and say, I haven't been touched in years or I have chronic pain or anxiety. And I would just love to pay for someone to touch me because we pay for everything else in this country, mm-hmm. but we've stigmatized genitals so much and we're losing a big part of this healing aspect. So even I, you know, I sat down with a woman, she did erotic, uh, therapeutic pelvic massage, specializing in erectile um, dysfunction and also premature ejaculation for about 10 or so years. Okay. She's also a highly trained specialist in a bunch of areas of human health. But she was operating primarily through Craigslist Personals because it was lucrative and it was independent. That's gone for her. So it's not only like the people can't access her. She can't make any money. And 
her job is in such a gray area of healthcare and like adult entertainment, but it's just, it's genitals involved. So it's still, you know, it's forbidden. What about gay queer people who don't use dating apps? Craigslist Personals was great for that. Mm-hmm. You know, I have trans friends who are like, I can't date anymore because Tinder isn't friendly to trans men and neither is many other dating apps. <laughs> so I, you know, I hear from people that their social life is to zero because before they could at least communicate with a stranger about what are you into? This is what I look like. Um, and we just, there's so much censorship that has happened regarding sexually relevant speech or talking about contact between strangers even. And the United States has criminalized consensual adult touch, different types of it throughout its history. I mean, until 1967, black and white people couldn't get married because of anti-miscegenation laws. And then sodomy was still illegal until 2009 in Lawrence v. Texas. And gay people are still trying to, you know, realize any kind of equality or see that anywhere. And now eggplant and peach emojis are illegal on Instagram and Facebook because they're being used as euphemisms for butts and dicks. Um, This wave of sexual conservatism or or sex censorship, really, that's kicked off by Fosta Sesta, which, again, as you said earlier, uh, it opened up criminal liability charges, criminal charges and fines Mm -hmm. for for, for platforms, for for sites like Facebook, Mm -hmm. for sites like Instagram for Craigslist Mm -hmm. and everyone, because the law is so vague and broad and the penalties are so steep that there has been this wave of sort of self-censorship to get out in front of, you know, weird charges from the Republican DOJ, the Republican controlled DOJ at the moment. And it is driving not just sex workers off the internet, but sex educators as well. YouTube is deplatforming mm-hmm. and hiding mm-hmm. a lot of, and flagging as, you know, uh, adult or sexual content that, that is strictly mm-hmm. educational. These conversations that we've been having about sex online for the last, you know, 20 years are being shoved mm-hmm. off the internet. And that's in a culture, in a society where we don't have decent comprehensive sex education in the schools. And, and what's, you know, it blows my mind about this. And, you know, I have a little bit of skin in this game. We're no longer allowed to advertise hump my porn festival, I on heard. Instagram or Facebook, um, which is crazy. Cause it's not like there isn't porn on the internet. This is porn in a movie theater that, that's doing something different, a little bit more educational, but you know, we don't have comprehensive sex education. People were getting a lot of their sex education online, and it's not explicit hardcore pornography that's being driven off the internet. It's information and it's conversations about sex, about how to make sex safer, about how to make sex safer, not just for sex workers, but for everyone out there who's interested in or having sex by there being these forums, you know, educational channels on YouTube people's you know own sites uh, people's there are sex educators out there who now can't advertise their conferences or their seminars on major platforms that have crowded out all other sort of venues for advertising that they, they sort of monopolized all advertising and now they're banning advertising that has anything to do with sex and it is really really going to harm people it is harming people People are dying. People are losing money. Canaries in the coal mine were sex workers who were the first harmed by Fosta Sesta. But in the long run, more people who are denied information about sex are going to be harmed. Um, let's pivot mm-hmm. from Fosta. Well, no, actually, I have one more question about Fosta Sesta mm-hmm. and particularly about Elizabeth Warren. She recently said that she was open to decriminalizing 
sex work. Her, she went on to say sex workers, like all workers, deserve autonomy, but they are particularly vulnerable to physical and financial abuse and hardship. That is some woke-ass shit about sex work and sex workers. <laughs> and yet Warren, along with Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, Klobuchar, Bernie Sanders, Warren voted for Fosta Sesta. And yet she says this about sex work on the campaign trail. How do you square that circle? How do you support sex workers and you know, a year and a half after you voted for Fosta Sesta? So I think that what she did there, I think she had received some feedback and myself and some of my peers who have been posting on social media. I have 99,000 followers on Instagram. And when she said that she was open to it, I, t- I tweeted at her and I posted for everyone and I linked to the Pro- Prostitution Reformation Act in New Zealand uh, in 2003. Where I was like, hey, you want to decriminalize? They did it and they did a great job. There's even feedback statistics. This is the time. So I think she's feeling public pressure because there's people like myself and advocates who have been watching and waiting for these politicians to succumb to the public pressure because I don't think they still understand the issues, but I think they're doing enough feedback sourcing from their campaign and enough of people who want them to win are, you know, millennials or people of this age or a little older who are informed about sex work stuff Mm -hmm. and they've been following. So, I mean, I still, I don't think Bernie gets it. And I understand like, you know, Americans, we've been raised our whole lives to conflate sexual labor with abuse. So most people assume that anyone doing sex work is abused, you know, and it's mostly women. It's mostly women who would tell me on the Internet or to my face that I have Stockholm syndrome and I just don't know any better. And my job is inherently victimizing. And so it's the false concern rhetoric that really drives legislation like this, where they don't source feedback from the communities that the legislation impacts. And the Internet is finally making that harder to do. Because if we didn't have social media 25 years ago, this bill, these bills, and they would have gone off even more without a hitch. But people are fighting back. One of the ways you're fighting back is by pushing an effort, backing an effort, organizing in Oregon to decriminalize sex work in Oregon. Now, I think of how we legalized marijuana in states, even though marijuana is still illegal mm-hmm. federally. I think about how we passed mm-hmm. marriage equality first by state-by-state battles. Is that what you're hoping to do Mm -hmm. in Oregon, to to decriminalize the sale of sex in one state, laboratory democracy, in this case will be Oregon, um, to then roll out decrim nationally? Yeah, I really think so. Because the way our current laws are written, I mean, I've, I've done all kinds of sex work, and most consistently as a stripper, and stripping is very legal and very celebrated in Oregon, um, you know, it's, we have people from all over the world coming to see us because we have food and fire and all kinds of artistic shit. And, and alcohol. I think that we can lead the way. <laughs> you, can sell, you can sell drinks in a strip club in Oregon. You can't yes. sell drinks in a strip club in Washington State. Mm-hmm. You can't have booze and tits at oh, the same time, uh, which makes it very hard oh, economically for strip clubs to survive here. Whereas the Oregon State Constitution's yes. freedom of expression law was interpreted by your state Supreme Court to protect places that sell booze and let people look at tits at the same time, that these things are not in conflict. Exactly. So you have have strippers, people come from all over, and you think this is a good place to start an argument about decriminalizing other forms of sex work? Absolutely. I mean, we have people who are going to be the next wave of politicians who understand the issues better. And it would actually be really, really easy the way that prostitution statutes for Oregon are already written. We could just drop the ones that charge consensual adults and we can maintain the laws that say you cannot coerce someone, you cannot force someone, you can't traffic someone, um, you can't have someone under 18 sell sex. Like 
those can stay in place and those will protect against pimping and trafficking just fine. And they will remove any kind of scrutiny from, again, myself and my friends or anybody else. Because if you legalize prostitution, you're going to put more regulations in place to where only some people can do it. Same way as when they legalized marijuana, you had to be a dispensary, someone with enough money to get licensing and then open a dispensary. But street sales are still legal. So if you decriminalize the sale of sex rather than legalize it, this way, the people who are most most vulnerable to arrest and abuse um, and discrimination are the people who would be selling sex to get by, survival sex workers. And these are often people who are runaways, underage, queer youth, trans youth, people of color. Um, a lot of kids who get kicked out of their houses by their parents for being gay or trans. They go to the mall and they meet a 25-year-old who's like, yeah, I can give you a place to live, but you got to work for me. This is how pimping happens. Mm -hmm. So we need to stop arresting people who are already vulnerable. Um, you know, and consensual touch between adults should not be a crime. So where can people who are interested in your efforts uh, find your writing, find you online? Thank you for asking. My website is stripperwriter.com. I'm on Instagram is the same name. Um, and then I have a podcast, Strange Bedfellows Podcast, and we have a ton of resources there. Um, you being one of them. Thank you, Dan. L Stanger, thank you so much for jumping on the phone today and, and good luck in Oregon. Thank you. Hey, Dan. Living in Toronto, married, late 30s, happily married, one kid, one wife, love her to death. She's the best. But, I mean, aside from other, you know, little things that we disagree on, we haven't had sex since my kid was born. Again, he's six and a half now. First, The first year or so that we weren't having sex post-child, I chalked it up to post-childbirth issues, body issues, confidence issues. Uh, getting back into swinging issues, and uh, and that was that. Uh, but then one year turned into two, turned into three, turned into more, etc. Uh, in the early going, when I tried to bring this up with her, uh, it was often shot down, saying that well, there's other things that were more pressing that were keeping her mind off of sex, like money issues that we were having, uh, job issues, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Uh, self confidence, body weight issues. Although side note, she's gorgeous and. Lately, the last couple of years, I've been bringing it up. She's just been brushing it off and saying, I don't feel comfortable talking about it. It's not something I want to discuss right now. This is not the time to place, etc." And I've been very, very patient and very, very kind about it and very uh, trying to be as GGG as possible about it. I tell her very often, uh, not in a, in, in a rude or condescending or, or backhanded or, or arm twisting way, that I you know I still think she's absolutely beautiful and that I'm still very interested in having sex with her and having that sort of a relationship with her on top of everything else we do, but uh, to no avail. With the whole Me Too thing that came out, I learned that she had had some sort of sexual trauma in the past, although she didn't delve too deep into it with me, and so I'm left to wonder. I do know that when we were having sex originally, uh, even though it was like, it was good, you know, it was, it was, it was good. Uh, I do know that she did have some pain issues around it sometimes, and that sometimes caused her to enjoy it maybe less than I would have hoped that she would. So long story short, I don't know what to do, man. Hopefully you can offer me some advice. All my friends say go to counseling. I'm wondering if there's a way to talk to her about this before we make that move. Your wife doesn't have to fuck you, but she does have to talk to you. You have to put your foot down. You have to insist. Not on sex, but on some clarity. What is going on here? You're obviously still very interested in having sex with her, and she is not interested 
in having sex with you. You would like to know what the issue is. You would like to know if indeed it is something that could be solved or resolved, if it's counseling she needs to address past sexual trauma, if there's some lingering pain issues, those could be addressed. But if it's a lack of sexual desire, if indeed she is not now and perhaps never was, I'm sorry to say, attracted to you physically, and yet she made a monogamous commitment to you, well, then that monogamous commitment came with certain obligations for her that if she wishes to be released from, you then need to be released from this monogamous commitment. You have to be able to have a conversation with her about the future. And you, I think, can tell her and should tell her that you can be in a sexless marriage, but you are not going to lead a sexless life. And so if your partnership is not characterized by sexual intimacy, if it's not an important part of your connection, if you guys are you know, loving partners and co-parents and you have a companionate relationship, then you need the freedom to seek sex outside of the relationship. And, you know, if you risk having that conversation, it means you risk perhaps divorce. You know, some people feel like marriage is a trap. And if somebody walks into it, and since marriage is monogamous, it's a monogamous trap. If somebody walks into that trap and you don't want to fuck them anymore, they just don't get to fuck anymore. But one person does not have a right to unilaterally declare an end to another person's sex life. You know, I'm just firing blindly here in the dark. Maybe there's something that you've done that, that, that that's wrong, that's turned her off. But even if that's the case, even if you're responsible for the collapse of the sexual component of your marriage, of your sexual connection, she has to talk with you about it. She has to tell you what you've done wrong. And if it's irreparable, if the, the, the break the, the, you know, can't be repaired, even then you're going to have to be released from the monogamous commitment that you made. That doesn't necessarily mean you want to be released or desire to be released from the commitment that you made to her, to be her husband, to be her partner, to be the co-parents of this child together. You know, marriage isn't just about sex. Marriage is about a lot of other things and you can still be all of those other things to each other. But if you're not going to have a sexual relationship and clearly after, if it's been six and a half years, you are most likely not going to have a sexual relationship going forward. You need to have an honest, all chips shoved into the center of the table conversation about what that means and what you're willing to settle for. And again, I think you have a right to say that I love you and I want to be your husband forever and I want to be a, a family, all three of us, under one roof together, but I'm not going to go without sex for the rest of my life. And we can have a conversation about what that might look like practically going forward, but we can't continue to do what we've been doing, which is to avoid this topic you're going to have to call the question. You're going to have to force the issue. And there's risk there in, in forcing the issue. But unless you are willing to be sexless for the rest of your life, to be celibate for the rest of your life, you're going to have to call the question. You're going to have to force the issue. You're going to have to insist that your wife speak with you about this. And that may be a conversation that you want to have with a counselor there acting as referee, but you can't even get your wife into a counselor's office without forcing the issue, without calling the question, without initiating 
the conversation, the long overdue conversation that you two need to have. Hi, Dan. I'm a bisexual woman um, in my 30s. As a uh, bisexual person, when I'm on, uh, sometimes it's as early as the first date, but sort of somewhere in the first couple dates with someone, they typically ask a question that is somewhere along the lines of something like, well, how could you ever be in a monogamous relationship with either a man, if they're a man, or a woman, if they're a woman? And essentially they're saying like me, if you're attracted to all genders. And I find this question very frustrating um, because, you know, I have a feeling that completely heterosexual people and completely homosexual people do not get asked this question. And I find it, you know, just insulting. And, you know, I kind of have a response. Um, Usually I just sort of put it back on them and I say, you know, well, if you were in a monogamous relationship with me, like, how could you go without having sex with other women? Because I identify as a woman. But, you know, I really kind of want to make them think about it a little bit more or like I just want some alternatives because I'm getting sick of answering this question. Um, I really just want to like shut it down forever. All right. I'm going to get in trouble for this. There's two things I want to say. The first thing is the thing I'm supposed to say. And uh, I I say it because I believe it and because it's true. A bisexual person in a monogamous relationship is still going to find other people attractive, just as a homosexual or heterosexual person in a monogamous relationship is going to still find other people attractive. And it, it sounds like, caller, that's the argument you've made to these terrible, no good, ignorant monosexuals who've laid this supposed problem at your feet, who've asked you this insulting question. They're still attracted to other people. You, as a bisexual person in a committed relationship, you're still going to be attracted to other people. The question is, and if you're in a monogamous relationship, whether you're going to act on those attractions. And if you're not a cheating piece of shit, or if circumstances aren't such that you could sleep with somebody else to do what you need to do to stay married and stay sane or whatever. You're not going to act on it. You're not going to act on your attractions to other people. If you're in a monogamous committed relationship, just as they aren't going to act on their attractions to other people. If they're in a monogamous committed relationship. Now, you know, when somebody asks you a question like this, I know it's annoying, particularly when it's someone who you're out on a date with, who asks you this kind of clueless question, about, you know, the person that you are when they, they, they demonstrate, you know, they reveal their ignorance in this way. It can make you think twice about wanting to continue to see that person, but you can also regard it as a, an opportunity to educate that person and open that person's eyes. And, you know, after you walk that stupid monosexual through that line of reasoning, there will be one less stupid monosexual in the world making this assumption about bisexuals, that bisexuals are incapable of honoring monogamous commitments. Bisexuals are capable of honoring monogamous commitments. There are millions and millions of bisexuals out there doing it right now. Perhaps even billions of bisexuals out there doing it. Well, perhaps not billions, but hundreds of millions of bisexuals out there doing it right now, honoring those monogamous commitments that they've made. Now I'm going to say the thing that I'm not supposed to say, and I probably will get in trouble for saying. There are also lots of bisexuals out there who've asked their partners 
They're committed, monogamous, usually opposite sex partners to open up the relationship so that they can act on their same sex desires. It's often the case that this happens in the context of a relationship that was closed and was committed and monogamous before the bisexual person realized or came to terms with the fact that they were bi and came out to their partners or even themselves about their bisexuality and don't want to lose their long-term committed relationship, but would like to experience same-sex sex at some point in their life. I think you're a little less likely to be that bisexual person in a long-term committed relationship who goes in and asks for an accommodation or an allowance for a same-sex experience or experiences because you've already had same-sex experiences because you are out and by now. But it's not entirely an irrational fear for someone who is heterosexual or homosexual, who's dating someone who's bisexual, to think about that ask, that ask for that allowance or that accommodation, and that ask being grounded specifically in their partner's bisexuality, because that is a thing that happens. And it may be that the person that you're out on a date with who asks you that question is really doing two things or saying two things. First, I'm kind of ignorant about bisexuality. I'm also a little ignorant or displaying my ignorance about the rules of attraction, even about monogamy. Maybe you can open my eyes to that. But also, you know, anxious on some level about the fact that if they are with you, they may be asked at some point to accommodate your bisexuality in a way that allows for you to sleep with somebody of the same or opposite sex, depending on who and what they are. And again, that's not an entirely irrational fear. And just as you can address and put their ignorance to bed about bisexuality and commitment and monogamy, you can address and put their anxiety to bed. If indeed what you want for yourself over the long term is a monogamous commitment and you want monogamy for life, and once you're in a monogamous relationship, you absolutely positively will not want to sleep with anybody else and you will not make that ask and you will not ground that ask if you were to ever make that ask in your bisexuality, you can reassure that person that you're on that date with at that time about that fact about yourself. Hi, Dan. I'm a 40-year-old bisexual woman who lives in the most liberal part of one of the most liberal states in the country. I'm calling because I work in an office of about 30 people, a third of whom are young, recent college grads, transgender, self-identified SJWs. I've always prided myself on being a really open-minded and kind person, but one by one, without fail, they've all done and said things that I find outrageous and alienating. A few quick examples. One of them lost their shit on a non-trans coworker because she said that ferrets were her spirit animal. One of them said they refused to deal with any customers who were cops. One of them had a meltdown when she found out that a new coworker identifies as Wiccan, saying that only African-American women can identify as Wiccan, which I don't even understand. Anyway, it's come to the point where I don't make small talk at work anymore for fear of offending someone. I feel like they band together and collectively wait for one of us cis folks to slip so that they can humiliate us in front of everyone, by the way. I tried talking to the business owners, but they're between a rock and a hard place because they have no idea what they can even say, and neither do I. I feel like these kids at work are literally making me transphobic, as in I am becoming afraid of interacting with transgender people. That sounds awful to say out loud, but it's true. Aside from finding another job, what can I possibly do? 
Point of clarification, uh, that person in your workplace, one of the members of this insufferable clique of recent college graduates, you said refuses to serve or work with cops because of a problem with the recording. It almost sounded like you said refuses to work with cunts. So anybody else out there who was confused, I had to back up and listen to it a couple of times myself. Cops, not cunts. All right. What do you do about this? click in your workplace of young recent college grads who all self-identify as SJWs, which was just a few years ago, uh, a, a label of self-identification, an irony that people on you know the left used uh, amongst themselves and then was weaponized by the right. And then you know people online argued that to call someone an SJW was an alt-right insult and you were playing into alt-right hands. So it's interesting that the wheel has turned and now there are social justice warriors at your workplace who identify as SJWs, who embrace the term. What do you do about them? Well, in addition to maybe getting your resume together and getting the fuck out of what sounds like an intolerable situation, you remind yourself every morning that this is not a representative sample, not a representative sample of trans people, not a representative sample of recent college graduates, not a representative sample of human beings. That these people that you work with somehow came together, brought out the worst in each other, and are constantly on the hunt for things to be offended about and people to blow up at each other about. If you want to be a real asshole, you could create an anonymous email account for yourself and send them all the recent comments that Barack Obama made about woke culture, about people pointing fingers at each other, looking for things to get offended about and yell at each other about, and how this actually doesn't result in political progress. If anything, it delays, impedes political progress. And while you get your resume together and you look to get the fuck out of that hell hole, yeah, I would continue to do what you're doing now, which is to not engage in small talk at work, to not engage with crazy people. And that's ableist of me. And if I said that in your workplace, if I said that they were crazy, they would blow up at me, is not to engage with these crazy people. Let them terrorize and thought police and crucible the shit out of each other while you stand there smiling and nodding and uh, looking the other way and getting your resume together. Hey, Dan. I'm a uh, 21-year-old white male in uh, the Northeast. I got a funny story and a question for you, I guess, how I should tackle this. So uh, I've been seeing this girl for, I don't know, a little bit. And uh, it's hard to find a place to, you know, get together and have sex. So like been having a lot of car sex. A little bit ago we got caught having sex in a in a parking lot by this kid who was like a like a fourteen, fifty year old kid just like riding his bike by and uh <laughs> caught us in the act. It's really embarrassing and uh clearly didn't learn from it. So a couple weeks later my uh idea was to uh drape some like uh, blankets like in the window so you couldn't see inside. Long story short, cops ended up uh, coming. We were like on video. It was like private property. It was like a business complex. Got caught again. And so uh, we both, uh, me and the girl, we live at home with our parents. Like we're in college. So I guess I got to talk to the parents about this, getting some privacy, just wondering what I should do. You're 21 years old. Hopefully you have the kind of relationship where you can go to your parents and say, okay, so I'm a 21-year-old college-age adult, realize this is awkward, you know that I have a girlfriend, you know that we are sexually active, we're being responsible, here's our birth control plan. We have recently gotten caught having sex in public, 
twice, once by a teenager on a bicycle and now by the cops because we are having sex in my car because we don't feel like we have anywhere else where we can have a little privacy and have a little sex. And I haven't wanted to have this conversation with you guys because it's awkward. You know, you think of me as a child. I think of you as my parents. You don't like to think of me as being sexually active. I certainly don't like to think of you, my parents, as being sexually active. But I would like to have sex in my bedroom in this house. Not too loud. will be totally discreet. But it means you may have to interact with my girlfriend in passing, knowing that I've just fucked her. That we've just fucked each other. What do you say, mom and dad? Hopefully your mom and dad would rather endure the awkwardness of knowing that you're having sex under their roof. Rather than having to go to the police station and bail you out, if the next time you get caught having sex in your car in public, the cops just don't send you on their way, which they're far likelier to do if you're an opposite-sex couple than if you're a same-sex couple, but arrest you. So ask mom and dad what they would prefer, that you have sex in their house, not too loud, and discreetly, maybe creating a zone of plausible deniability for them so that after this awkward conversation, they can return to pretending that their darling 21-year-old college-age child with a partner with a girlfriend isn't sexually active or risking arrest. Ask them which they would prefer. Hopefully, they would prefer the former over the latter. Hi, Dan Savage in the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth, 33-year-old straight cis male living in a major city in the southeast. Uh, full disclosure, I follow a vegan lifestyle and I have a strong bias towards it, especially since it's helped me lose 90 pounds and had a lot of other health benefits from it. Well, anyways, I've seen two documentaries on Netflix referencing vegan diets, and they both mention an impact on erections. One is called Forks Over Knives. And in the film, one older male a heart disease patient mentioned that his erections returned after switching to a vegan diet. The main reason for the diet change was for heart disease reversal. Turns out that erectile dysfunction is an early sign of heart disease. So the returning erection was a nice secondary effect of the diet change. The other film is a more recent documentary called The Game Changers. And they actually ran an experiment with three college athletes feeding them different diets and monitoring their erections as they slept. I didn't even realize that we go through like rounds of erections throughout the night. Anyways, the impact of the vegan foods in comparison to the omnivorous equivalent was that the vegan diet resulted in increased hardness and duration of erections. I was wondering what your thoughts are on this and what, if any, exposure you had to this sort of information. I think it could be a great alternative for those not wanting to take medications for like erectile dysfunction and could also have the added benefit of heart disease reversal for those with a family history of heart disease. Uh, I wish I could give an example of how it helped me, but I avoided anything sexual or romantic for most of my life because of a very dark view I had of myself. Uh, I've put in a lot of work with therapy, meditation, and an overall healthier lifestyle. However, now that I am sexually active, I don't have much of a sexual past to compare it to. I'm curious to get your thoughts on this information, especially if you get a chance to check out the two films. I haven't seen either of the films that you mentioned, but it intuitively makes sense. A vegan diet is going to be better for your heart, better for your arteries and veins, better for your circulation, lower cholesterol, fiber, veggies. You know, there are a lot of people out there who have benefited from vegetarianism or veganism. And one of the benefits has been, you know, healthier heart, healthier circulation. And erections are entirely dependent on blood flow and circulation. So if your diet or lifestyle contributes to 
good healthy circulation, yeah, arguably, obviously, intuitively, it makes sense that that would contribute to obtaining and sustaining, as they say in the ED med commercials, erections. I haven't seen the films. I'll check them out. Everybody out there listening can check them out. And in addition to being better for the planet, which I think is a terrific argument for vegetarianism or veganism, yeah, that veganism or vegetarianism better for your dick, that might be an argument that appeals to some of those red-blooded American men who make such a performance out of eating chicken wings and deep-fried steaks and all that other garbage that is bad for your heart, bad for your heart health, and anything that's bad for your heart health is going to be bad for your dick health too. It makes sense. A lot of people out there aren't going to want to concede the point to, you know, vegans who can be proselytizer-ish about their diets and lifestyles, but it is a point that the meat eaters out there may have to concede. Veganism, better for your meat. All right, before we get to your response calls, let's read some of your tweets. Richard LJ tweets, it's okay to feel healthy and to feel traumatized. He's quoting me there. Thanks at Fake Dan Savage for saying exactly what I needed to hear on this week's Savage Lovecast. Green Bean Sasserole tweets, I'm quite pleased to hear the Fake Dan Savage callers taking advantage of the voice memo feature on their phones to send in calls. It's much easier on the ears. Hashtag Savage Lovecast. We couldn't agree more. Of course, the line are open 206-302-2064. We still welcome your phone calls, but if you can use that voice memo app on your phone and email us your question at voicemail at savagelovecast.com, it is much higher quality and better listening. And finally, normalizing non-monogamy podcast tweets, been binging Magnum Savage Lovecast on our road trip and came up with a new rule. If you call in and refer to your or anyone's fetish more than once without saying what it is, at fake Dan Savage should assume your fetish is having your question played without answering your question. Yeah, it always helps if we know what the kink is that you're asking about when you're asking me to talk about your kink. Love your show, Normalizing Non-Monogamy Podcast, and appreciate that you guys are listening to mine too. All right, if you want me to read one of your tweets about the Lovecast on an upcoming episode, be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast, and now your response calls. Hi, this is in response to the woman in episode 680 who couldn't stop thinking about her wild sexual connection of two months, even though she's now happily married. So what you're describing and the pattern that guy is doing is what they call intermittent reinforcement. Basically, it gives you tons of attention. You have tons of great sex. Suddenly, he starts to half lose interest. Suddenly, you're discarded. So it's a pattern that is not only makes for amazing, crazy, intense chemistry and sex because you're getting this intermittent reinforcement, but it's as addicting as a gambling addiction. It actually lights up the same part of the brain as gambling addiction. So it's actually a very addictive thing and why you feel so intense and can't let it go. It basically creates a trauma bond. So it's not real. It's actually kind of bullshit. It's a bad connection, even though the sex feels amazing and intense. It's actually just more because it's like a drug than anything else. So the only way to deal with this is to block that guy forever. Don't anxiously wait for him to possibly contact you in the future because he probably will. They always do. But just block him right now. The same way an addict needs to be away from their drug of choice, you have to block this guy and stay away because the addiction is strong. Believe me. Hey, uh, this is just a comment for the very eligible bachelor on episode 680. 
who is wondering how to get out there and meet more girls after being so dedicated lately. Just want to say, oh my God, me too. And Dan, you are totally right. There's so many of us out there who don't want the commitment and just want to have fun. I spent the last year out of my first relationship dodging guys our age who do want more commitment. Just want to add, because I'm also not a fan of online dating, find a hobby and start socializing socializing outside of bars and join, you know, join a rock climbing gym or start going to an art class or whatever's your gym. You'll meet other young people who share the same interests and build friendships organically. And when you do meet a girl you click with, just tell her straight up what you are looking for. We can hear it. And most of us will agree. Not interested in marriage and babies. Met a couple last week and I told her I will totally be your unicorn. Just be honest, straightforward. Have all the fun. This is a response call for episode 680 and the caller who wondered how she could better hold off on talking about sex on her dating or chatting apps. I've had great success with including a line in my bio that just says, I love it if you can restrain your inner perv for the first few conversations or meetings. So she might want to give that a try. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. Give us a call. You can also send us your call by using the Voice Memo app on your phone and emailing your question to voicemail at savagelovecast.com. If you like my political rants at the top of the show, you're going to want to catch me on Blabbermouth, the Strangers Week in Review podcast hosted by Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Eli Sanders every Wednesday. The holidays are coming up. If you want to get something for the Savage Lovecast fan on your list, you can give the gift of the Magnum Savage Lovecast twice as long, more guests, more questions, and no ads. Just go to savagelovecast.com and click on Gift. And Hump, my dirty little porn film festival, is now playing in San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, Vancouver, British Columbia, Olympia, Washington. It's the premiere of the 15th annual Hump Film Festival. Go to humpfilmfest.com for tickets and keep an eye on humpfilmfest.com to find out when the 15th annual Hump will be coming to a city near you next year. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow L. Stanger on Twitter at L. Stanger. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with an installment of Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.